Hi, I'm Gemma Owens and I'm taking over the podcast episode. Share plans are one of the most celebrated ways for companies to reward their top talent and retain staff. But as we continue to face the reality of the cost of living crisis, the topic of executive pay, reward structures and remuneration are all under increasingly sharp focus. So we invited some industry experts to join a panel discussion on this so they could share some of their own thoughts. The event was part of our AHEAD programme for corporate governance professionals. It's a regular series of in-person events, so if you'd like to find out more and get involved, I'll leave a link in the description. I'm now going to hit play so you can listen back to the session, which will start with an introduction from the panellists themselves. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, everybody. I'm not a newsreader, so you've just got me. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I'm going to introduce our panel. And if you can uh, yeah, let the guests know who you are and, and your highlights. I'll go to you first, Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm Jeremy Edwards. I head up the London share plan team at um, Baker McKenzie. We're a global law firm. We're practically um, everywhere. Uh, we're one of the largest global law firms. Uh, we have very strong presence, actually, in the share plan and incentive market. Um, we have over 100 share plan lawyers globally. Um, and... Uh, with a, a strong London team. It's very lovely to be here today. We, we, we in Bacon McKenzie have just finished completing um, a FTSE 100 remuneration survey. And my poor team has been through all the remuneration reports of the FTSE 100. <laughs> I don't think I'm that popular at the moment. <laughs> but they have done the task. And the reason why I'm holding papers is I've actually got um, some key results which I think should... I'd like to just give you some snippets now, actually. Um, when we looked at what's been going on on executive pay, and, of course, this is all one year out of date now. Um, it's a continual series of cycles. And actually, I shouldn't reveal to my team that they're going to start going again pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> but they will. There are some really fascinating figures that came out this year. Um, for instance, the median CEO pay, I have to look at this because I can't remember all these figures, um, total figure of, a single total figure of remuneration has gone up to 3.41 million, up from 2.46 million. So that was a 38% increase. Now, that is a large increase um, at, at a time when customers and employees are not getting those, that larger an increase. Um, it's not a surprise it's going to be a year focusing on uh, remuneration. I can't remember your catchphrase, but... Uh, the year of REM. The year of REM. I actually also had another catchphrase, which was, last year it was the year of justification. Now, I'm, I'm, I have to change the monitor every year, really. Uh, I'm going for the year of focused justification. <laughs> Um, and the basis of that is what I think this is all about is justifying where you've got to on particular issues, including, and we'll come on to this later, um, why you are paying your executives so much. <laughs> um, where, why you, where, where are you on this journey and why have you got to these figures? I can, actually, I was thinking about it on the way in here. The fact we had a 38% increase last year, which was a rebound from... um, It was all caused by variable pay um, going up again because people had weighed bonuses the previous year or they hadn't had good um, long-term incentive plan outcomes. 
Um, so that story has to be told. So, but hopefully this year, the rate isn't going to be quite that headline 38%. But just be careful here because uh, underlying figures, you know, like the CEO um, and employee um, uh, pay ratio, last year it was up to 78 um, to 1. <laughs> uh, the average employee... Uh, the, uh, the average CEO earns 78 times more than the average employee. That's up from 65 to 1 the previous year. In a cost of living a crisis, you're good, one has to kind of explain where you got to on that. Um, but what we're finding here as well is um, there isn't a huge movement in the designer plans. I'll come on to that later. Um, the long-term incentive plan, the performance share plan, it's been around for ages. That um, is still used by 85% of the FTSE 100. Less so below the FTSE 100, but I'm not going to get my team to go for it, <laughs> the whole FTSE 350. Um, um, uh, um, and actually, there was a debate around, you know, five, six years ago as to whether executive remuneration should become simpler. And what we found... Um, was that some companies went for the restricted share plan, which is a performance share plan, basically without the performance conditions, um, probably smaller and um, uh, with a, a financial in, uh, underpin. But actually only 15% of the FTSE 100 have gone for that. And of that, um, uh, of that six out of the 15 um, actually still partially operate a PSP and a restricted share plan. We did see some new restricted share plans last year, but not, it's not the flood where, when I first started off in practice 30 years ago, um, everyone was doing options. And at some point, there was a flood from options to performance share plans. It's not that flood. Um, so these are all about decisions. And decisions um, in particular in relation to how much executives are getting. Um, and actually, when we looked at the voting figures last year, they weren't too bad, actually. You know, um, the average... Um, I have to look at my figures here. The average median vote in favour of the director's remuneration report was 95%. Um, and, well, 9% of companies received a low vote, uh, um, a significant vote, i.e. less than 80% uh, percent report. But it wasn't dramatic, um, uh, it really wasn't dramatic. I mean, one could say that 9% is actually dramatic in itself. Uh, um, but actually, it wasn't, it wasn't horrendously dramatic, if I can put it that way. Um, but where people did receive votes again, it was actually in the use of discretions. Um, the, uh, of the votes that went against, 58% um, 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 were, were because of not... Of, of the use of discretions, either someone had got too much on leaving or there was disquiet with not marking down, which is going to be a big thing this year. So I'm not going to spoil <laughs> the rest of the, the conversation we're going to have. But I, I wanted to give you that sort of broad overview. We've got lovely figures about ESG and how it's been embedded in. So around 71% of companies have a significant amount of... of, of um, uh, remuner uh, re um, remuneration subject to ESG targets. Um, and where people do put ESG targets, it's around 16% of the director's outcome uh, in terms of variable pay 
which is going to be at risk. And that actually is the same for both bonus and actually LTIP, where, where those conditions are put in. Significant. Um, but I think this year we're going to be concentrating on finances and what, um, where people have got on the journey. Um, so I'm, I'm Eddie Akari. I'm responsible for business development at DF King. Uh, DF King is the uh, proxy solicitation uh, group of, uh, of, of Link. Um, we've, we've obviously seen a number of, um, of, of interesting situations over over the last um, uh, proxy season. Um, I mean, you know, essentially, sort of looking forward into into 2023, um, you've got companies and, uh, and 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 the remuneration committees. Sort of navigating um, the, the difficulties that Jeremy's, Jeremy's described, you know, we've really got to um, sort of take a balanced approach, balance the the reward and, and incentivize the management, but also, um, you know, as, as Jeremy pointed out, really reflecting the experiences and, and the expectations of, of a wider stakeholder um, group. We, we're kind of moving away from the shareholder primacy thing at the moment, and you know, taking into account the, the employees, I guess. You know, if you're looking at ESG, we're kind of focusing a little bit more into that S side of things. I think that's going to be a key um, subject for, for 2023. Um, you know, we've got we've got all these macroeconomic challenges um, that are impacting the economy. We've got the, the, the situation in, in Ukraine. We've got the uh, the, the energy prices, um, inflationary environment. Um, all of this is sort of feeding uncertainty. Um, into the economy and obviously feeding into uncertainty uh, in terms of what companies are going to be posting in terms of results, profits, etc. So, um, you know, how does this impact um, governance and, and, and especially REM? I think the REM committees are going to have to sort of take a, um, you know, they're going to have to delicately, delicately navigate the, um, the, the sort of uncertainty when, um, when, when judging the outcomes and you know, and, and, and certainly when they're setting their, their, their REM for, for this year. So talking of, of, of stakeholder interest, I mean, the, the sort of wider stakeholder interest in REM is, is not really showing any signs of abating. It's, um, you know, it's, it's going to become more and more important. And um, I think, I think uh, you know, companies are certainly going to meet with shareholder resistance if they don't, uh, if they don't take um, these things into um, into into account. Um, so you know, what should companies do? I think the issuers definitely have to show um, shareholder alignment with with um, shareholders alignment with with pay and performance. Um, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a balance. Remuneration needs to motivate executives to achieve the uh, the company's strategic objectives, but also um, you know, in terms of designing these remuneration structures, they need to reflect. Um, Returns to, to, to sort of long-term shareholders, you know, not just kind of um, short-term metrics. Um, so pay definitely needs to be aligned to more long-term strategy, and um, companies obviously need to use the statement by the chair of the remuneration committee in their in their narrative reporting to um, outline how their um, the chosen remuneration approach, you know, how that aligns. With the company's strategic goals and and the, and the key performance indicators, um, this also needs to be done in a in a sort of transparent manner. It has to be done. Um, it's you know the, the rationale for the for the share plans and incentive structures. They need to be explained in a clear manner. I've, I'm 
often, you know, as a proxy solicitor and working on the other side of things, sort of helping the company interface with the investors, we're, we're, we're sort of getting these tomes. And you know, Jeremy said he's got the got his uh, colleagues to look through all of the all of the REM reports. I mean, I can say, you know, my governance department are doing the same thing, and it's uh, I've got one here. It's uh, one colleague here. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think you know, REM policies they really need to promote sort of long term value creation, um, and um, I think, I think obviously, the other thing to sort of consider this year, with it being a REM policy year, it's a, it's a binding vote. Um, there, there is, you know, most of the most of the the, the, the votes last year were um, supported um, to a high degree, but we did work on a number that um, I guess you could call were contested. I mean, you know, when I say contested, I mean I'm, I'm talking about less than less than ninety ninety percent support. I think it's about. Um, you know, there, there was uh, there was about 19% of um, of the report votes that got that got less than support, and that, that was up that was up from um, the 2020 figure. I mean, about 12% in 2020 got less than 90%, and then 2021 it was about 16%. And in terms of REM policy, I think 12 companies uh, received less than 90% um, support in 2022, which compares to eight companies in. in 2021, um, and you know we saw five five companies um, that uh, that got more than 10% opposition. Um, there were some that had 60. I think GSK, uh, Ashdead, uh, Halma um, got sort of support in the 60s. Um, I think Standard Chartered were, were around the 70%. So, um, and m as most of those concerns raised were around the um, were increases to the to the maximum. Uh, bonus opportunity. Um, so, you know, in terms of in terms of where else we, we stand, proxy advisors, there's a strong correlation between um, negative recommendations on on REM policy and, and report and reduced support level. However, you know, it isn't necessarily the case that um, you know that, that it's the end once you get that negative recommendation. We work with many clients. Um, you know, if you if you if you've got a, a year round open dialogue with your clients, then you've got far more chance of mitigating against those, uh, those uh, against votes. So, um, you know, we're, we're a sort of tactical player. Obviously, you know, the law firms and, and the other players are more, more strategic. We support our clients in, in kind of getting, uh, getting the resolutions across the line. And I'm Sonia Gilbert. I head up the remuneration and incentives team at Clifford Chance. Um, Probably a not dissimilar firm in many ways to Jeremy's, in lots of places, but slightly fewer than Baker and McKenzie. But we too have a large sort of global team, all focused on remuneration benefits and share plans. And uh, I was thinking about preparing for this session earlier in the week, and on Tuesday I was in a remuneration committee meeting, thinking, frankly, I'm really glad, particularly this year, that I am not a Remco member, because, <laughs> because you know, we were having a really fascinating debate, but this was a situation for a company where their remuneration committee is in a real bind, and I'm sure that for some of you in the audience today, you're thinking, phew, we're not in this position, but there will be others that are in a very difficult situation. And the situation this company is in is, is basically, to Jeremy's point about people changing the types of plans they went for, they looked two, three years ago at what the appropriate type of plan was for them, and they decided to move away from sort of LTIPs and PSPs to more of a sort of restricted share plan. 
really challenging, challenging performance conditions, but could pay out really significant amounts. And so, of course, the company, together with the likes of Eddie, went off to engage with shareholders and did so much work ahead of the AGM at that time and getting the plan in place. Because of a lot of what's gone on in the world, nothing to do with the performance of the directors or the senior leadership team, this thing's wholly underwater. And management have come to the Ramco and said, we've got to do something about this because we've got this plan, but it is no incentive whatsoever. And in fact, we are facing significant retention issues and we're having important people in our business picked off. And the remuneration committee has sat there thinking, well, this is really difficult because two, three years ago, we went to shareholders and said, no, this is what we really need and why. And we, we justified it sensibly. We had great engagement with shareholders. We may now need to come back to them possibly to only two, three years later to say, things have really changed and now we need something different. And there was a lot of debate as between the individual Remco members, let alone between the position of Remco and management, which just made me think, I think this is going to be a year of Rem and quite a difficult one. And then on the sort of flip side, almost the sort of shareholder side, I don't know if anyone else walked down from Moorgate this morning, but I came down from the tube and I came past the front of Standard Chartered and there were people who were all set up. I don't know if you saw them, they had like school robes on and they were setting up and doing a protest. And obviously in this day and age, it's not that unusual to have people doing some sort of protest outside any large financial institution in particular. But they were handing out what they were calling a school report about Standard Chartered CEO. I, I took a copy because I was like, oh, I wonder what they're saying. And <laughs> I, was, I was at really early. So I thought, you know, normally I haven't got time and I don't stop and engage. But this lady was, you know, wanted to talk. So I thought, I'm just going to hear what she's got to say. I've got, you know, no particular view on this, but I want to hear. And, of course, most of what's in this school report and most of what they were there for was in relation to the running of the company generally. But what was very interesting, and obviously she had no idea what I was coming to or what I did, she said, and don't get me started on his pay. She said, every year, CEO, like all these big companies, gets this huge pay rise. It's not fair, it's not right. And it was clearly a really thorny issue. And this was coming from someone who was very articulate, clearly had done a lot of research on the company generally, wasn't just... To, you know, grabbing onto sound bites and that kind of thing. And it made me think even more about the difficult year that I think it is going to be for many companies. Because how do you balance getting things right for the business and the senior leaders and making sure that all your wider stakeholders, including the, you know, the likes of people who may be protesting on the street or people who might put articles in the press, feel? So I, I think it's going to be a really interesting year. And that begs the question, though. I mean, how, how are these plans designed? What is taken into consideration? Because, like you say, you've got um, plans that pay out massive amounts, and it's not really articulated well to those shareholders that don't really understand. You say this lady, for instance, done her research, but many people don't, and they do, they do go onto those sound bites, and they only hear what they, what's spoken about in the media, and they don't do that research. So how do we make it more simple? I, I don't think they are simple to understand, if no. I'm honest, because I don't know about you in the audience, but I'm often told that even the senior executives in some of these plans don't really understand how they work, which strikes me that maybe we all need some sort of slightly more fundamental yeah. shift here. But to, to, to me, it feels like there are too many different plans. Yeah. There's too much complexity in them. 
which means people don't understand them even at senior levels, which begs the question, well, are they a real incentive if you don't really understand what it is you can get and exactly how you can drive it? Um, so I, I, I think some companies do a brilliant job of explaining their plans and have people who are very invested in the sort of financial education piece and helping people understand the benefits of those. But often, you know, I talk to a company and it's often built up over time. The company will say, well, we've ended up with kind of five or six different things. And are they, do they really work very well together? And what should we be thinking about? And I, I don't think it's easy because yeah. you've got to come back to, are we going to sort of scrap what we've got and go with something else or not? As I say, so do companies take a step back look at what they're trying to achieve uh, and rethink what their, what their plans. I mean, do you see that often? But it seems like every company just goes on the same roller coaster of their plans each year and not really take a step back and think, what are we trying to achieve here? And do you think that would be something you'll see this year? I think it's a very difficult question because I, I, I echo what Sonia is saying here. It's a very difficult year to go to shareholders yeah. with new plans. Um, and and to be able to exp explain and articulate why. Um, look, for people in the know, they know the design of the plans. Yeah. Um, I think that will not permeate down to people on the street, even the articulate ones that you meet. It's just, it's, it's we, we know. Um, we know the background and the institutional investor expectations and why things are put in plans, and in fact, it's got to the point when I look at a, a share plan, I even know who's drafted it within the city now <laughs> and why they put a particular clause in. Um, yeah, it's quite a game that you can play with plans. I don't know <laughs> drafted this one. Um, um, and actually, but actually, it's going to be very difficult. And I can understand this thing about complexity. I was looking at, thinking through our FTSE 100 survey here. Um, Basically, companies on average are now using three broad performance metrics in relation to their performance share plans. So 97% um, of companies are, are using two or more. Um, and actually, we've even got to the point when 5% of companies have got five or more performance conditions in their share plans. Um, so what we're basically seeing is relative TSR quite, being the most common performance condition. We're then seeing a lot of earnings per share or earnings conditions, and now we've got the ESG conditions in it as well. Um, uh, and on the bonus side, sometimes I look at these bonus scorecards that <laughs> in remuneration reports. Actually, I wasn't too cruel on my team. They didn't have to go and look at these in great detail. But honestly, even for some of my clients, I'm sort of um, wor worrying about... Um, just the complexity of the, the, the bonus scorecard to actually work out. It's like, would that motivate me? If I, would I really understand what I had to do? Well, I would expect the CEO and the CFO should be motivated and understand what they have to do. But will that sort of permeate down? Um, but there again, on the other hand, and I think it's often bad luck on the cycle, actually. We've got, we've got around... This is one of the years this year, another reason it's going to be the year of REM, um, where actually a majority of companies have their remuneration policy, which sets um, the directors what, what directors can pay. You have to go back to the shareholders at least every three years. Um, 
It's a roughly around, for the FTSE 100, around 55-60% of companies will have to go back this year, I think. Um, it's the big year. Um, but you're a very brave person to, to then... And I think this happened on the last time we had the, the last three-year um, uh, um, uh, policy coming up. In a year when your um, customers might be suffering, your employees, might, some might be now being laid off, um, there might be, um, their pay rises are probably below inflation in a lot of cases. Um, it's quite a thing, I think, in that year to come up with some radically different new proposal. Um, but it does go back, I think, to where you are as a company. And this is why I'm calling it the year of focus justification. Where are you on the journey? And not every company has had a bad year. Um, if you look at some sectors have done well. And I think when it comes down to particular proposals or particular justifications, knowing what your share price has done, very obvious, um, but actually comparing your share price with um, the relative TSR, if you're, if you, I have a sort of built-in radar. You have relative, if you have this chart with relative TSR or absolute TSR, uh, and, uh, and on the other bottom of the chart you have financial pay. If your pay is above the curve and your performance is below the curve, that's an inbuilt radar that actually investors are going to look at you quite closely. An inbuilt radar that you probably have to be very careful when justifying a, um, a generous new share plan. Um, and I think it's quite a hard message, and I've always thought this, um, to go to shareholders and say, well, actually, we want to move away from a performance share plan with these conditions, and we just want to have restricted stock awards, um, at a time if the company isn't performing that well. It's the time when you want to do it for your executives, because you, they might be disappointed they're not getting anything paid out. But it's quite a difficult message. What are you trying to say to me on the, the future performance of this yeah. business? So yeah, I think one has to be careful. To, um, but I think it's knowing where your company is on the journey and why they need it. Um, and ultimately, there is a counterbalance to this because your investors want your company to do well. So they don't necessarily just want to have a fight with you on remuneration. Um, there is a counterbalance. If you can tell the story of where you are and why it is important with what you're doing, um, uh, that will help um, considerably. But be aware that investors have seen these arguments before and are cynical. So how concerned do you feel UK-listed companies are about being voted against? You know, do you, have you seen much feedback? Or? I don't know about you, Eddie, but I think we've seen something of a shift. Because if I was speaking to companies five, eight years ago certainly listed companies in the UK, a lot of people would have viewed it as pretty disastrous if they got anything less than about a 95% yep. vote in favour of their remuneration report. They might have accepted a little bit less on a policy, depending on what they were doing. Whereas we're seeing many more companies that are saying, frankly, particularly on the REM report, as long as we get above the 80%, so we don't go on the Investment Association's <laughs> naughty step in relation to that, we're fine with it. And actually... Even if we do end up on that list, I mean, if you ever look at that list, 
the bulk of companies and because each resolution is named, the, the bulk of the, the resolutions that are on there are REM related, where people get those significant votes against. And I think there is just a bit more acceptance that some of that's going to happen, particularly if there's something controversial that you're doing. I don't know what you see, Eddie. I do, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I absolutely agree with you. It's, it's um, you know, I think we kind of have to ask, how did we get here? You know, and I mean, we got here because um, 30, 40 years ago, um, US companies started to give their executives you know, pretty unbridled pay rises, and they got those because of weak boards. They had plurality voting there where, you know, the boards were basically entrenched and compensation committees weren't really doing their job. And, and they were saying, you know, and then we started talking about global talent markets and, um, you know, we're kind of, I think, led by sort of pharma and tech and, you know, these other things where you've got, you know, typically you've got a, a lot of crossover with the states and, and then that, you know, those people come into the UK and then suddenly you've got somebody making 20 mil in the UK and you've got somebody making 2 mil in the UK going, wow, I'm only earning like, oh, he's making 10 times more than me or she's making 10 times more than me. What, what's, what's going on, you know? And then, but, you know, we've got this, we've, we've had a pretty limitless ratcheting up and, um, you know, and I think that's certainly caused, it's essentially put us into a conflict relationship between, mm. between the wider stakeholder universe. And, you know, shareholders especially, institutional shareholders, are sort of trying their best to rein this in. And obviously what you have here is a, is a, is a sort of regulatory setup, and this is where the, where the lawyers come in and say, look, you know, this is how we can design these plans um, that are sort of compliant. So it's a balance of getting, you know, building a, building a better mousetrap, okay, so that, um, that's going to give the executives what they want in terms of reward and remuneration. And when I say reward and remuneration, it has to be, has to be linked to performance. You know, there's, there's a whole other um, spectrum here of rewards being given that aren't properly linked to performance uh, one way or another, you know, that, that obviously brings them into conflict with, with, with the shareholders. And, the, and, you know, and if you have... Um, sort of imperial CEOs that are, that are treating the company as their personal fiefdom, um, typically owner founders, you know, that, that, that can't sort of get, get their head around the, the corporate governance uh, standards that they have to, you know, comply with once they list. There, there's that side of things. And, um, you know, I think, I think we certainly, um, we're certainly seeing um, a lot of pushback. From, from, from institutional investors. The IA obviously writes their, you know, their, their annual sort of principles of remuneration and they send out the letters to the Remco chairs and you know, that sort of details all the things that they have to do. And this year there, there was actually a couple of paragraphs in there about the cost of living and, you know, and, even, and even this whole, this incredible com, uh, concept of, um, of, of actually showing self-restraint as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose for this year, I mean, there was awards made in 2020 at the height of the pandemic um, where the share price at the time was quite low and we're going to have windfalls investings in this year. So what do you see happening in the REM policy, Jeremy, for this to try and counteract or Well, this help? is going to be the really difficult issue yeah. that the REMCOs are going to have to face this year. And it's not easy because you've got to balance out incentivization and getting the right people and pay the right amount for the right people yeah. with this perception that people could get a windfall gain. So there is a specific section of this in the letter to RIMCO chairs that the um, Investment Association wrote in November 
Um, I don't think it says very much other than you need to you need to sort of be able to justify why you're doing it and making sure you don't get a windfall game. Um, and it's um, uh, uh, you've got to make sure it's not inappropriate. Um, and but that's a not an easy topic in itself. No. Um, and um, so if, if someone's had an award, they might have waved stuff in the past. They might feel aggrieved if you suddenly take off a bit. But I think it, this goes to where you are on your journey again, that this is the focused justification. Um, has your company benefited unduly by external events that really the, the managers haven't um, um, contributed into? Um, you, you know, you might get a supermarket that might have done, uh, might have had a rebound because they'd be able to pass off their costs or whatever, um, or oil companies or whatever. I, I think, I think it's being a bit just looking at the headline figures, and it's a job for the Remco chairs, I think, in particular, to be able to say, well, actually, no, this where we are in the journey is acceptable. Okay. Um, uh, and bearing in mind the, co the customer base as well. Yeah. But not an easy job. Yeah, and, I, and I think particularly if you might be looking at a situation where what you granted in 2020, now we're three years later, might pay out. But possibly what you granted last year and the year before could be quite underwater, not just on share price grounds, but your performance grounds. And I know certainly some remuneration committees we've been speaking to who've been saying, well, I'm looking at this and thinking, we don't know, of course, because... The last 12 months have been testament to the unpredictability of the world and the markets. But it's possible, quite possible, that the next two cycles aren't going to pay out. So actually, we will allow the 2020 awards to pay out sort of in the ordinary course because we've got to have some lever here to make people feel incentivized, make sure they feel that they're being appropriately rewarded. So I don't think it's easy, but I, I think all of this is why... We're all seeing companies, and particularly Ramco's, probably focus almost as much on non-board pay as they are on board pay, which I think is quite a shift because you know, certainly if you look at most Ramco terms of reference, it will make it very clear that they're there to look at the executive direct pay and sometimes the next level down and sort of pay heed to what's happening elsewhere but not necessarily be focused on the detail, whereas... We've seen almost remuneration committees pushing to say, OK, well, these proposals have come from management or reward or whichever part of the business it is for the executives. What is it that we're doing for all employees? Um, what are we doing, not just in relation to pay rises, but what can we do to help out with the cost of living crisis? Should we be looking again at, you know, have we got all employee share plans and do they work? And what can we give people that doesn't necessarily involve them having to put their hand in their pocket? And I think that's been quite a shift over the last 12 months with Remco's looking at things much more broadly than certainly I've ever seen them do before. That's really good to hear. And I suppose, what will be the most, most focus points for this Rem season, do you think? And what are they looking for? Where do you think there could be votes against that? the most? I think going back yeah. to Jeremy's point around um, particularly what happens in relation to 
directors who have left. Right. And I only say that because <laughs> we're doing one that's been running over the last week or so, where the debate, it's kind of, it was kind of obvious, but it was in some ways surprising because we were working with the company, individual has obviously got their own views and getting their own advice. And their standpoint was, if a Remco's got the discretion and this person has done a good job, why are they not exercising this discretion? So what they were effectively saying was, look, we want everything to, to, that is possible to pay out to pay out in full. We don't want time prorating. We don't want the person to have to wait. Um, what's the problem here? You've got the discretion. You know, obviously, company responses. Yep, but that's not market, and it's a discretion, and we don't have to use it. And it was interesting to see that real tension between the two sides to come to a resolution on what the settlement terms were going to be. Now, from my personal perspective, I think the company has come out the right side of the line, which is both fair to the individual but appropriate in terms of market. And if I sat on that Remco, I'd feel very relaxed that I could justify the decisions yeah. that had been made. But but I think that it, it, some of those decisions on people who left will be a big focus. Okay. And I think another area that will be a big focus is for those who stay, overall, what's the increase in pay? Not just salary, where I think shareholders are likely to kick up a real um, stink if you've got senior people getting pay rises and they're, they're more, certainly in percentage terms, than further down. Not least because, of course, at the senior level, the percentage pay increase on something like salary, then they're sort of ratcheting up what you can pay in terms of bonus opportunity or LTIP, because all of those things are sort of linked to, to salary in the first place. I, I think personally those will be two flashpoints, but interested in thoughts. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I do think looking more broadly of where the, the shareholder revolts are likely to come, obviously things like lever, but I think that often the lever scenario can can be intertwined with a wider discontent by investors that will, the way the company is progressing. So if there's a bugbear or an activist, activist shareholder out there that is not happy um, with either the new leadership or generally how the management has been going in the last couple of years, it's often the the remuneration that gets the, get, gets whipped for it, if that makes sense. So you, you kind of like to understand the risk of revolt against you. I think you need to understand more broadly what your investor base is actually thinking of you as a company, um, because I think it, that uh, is where I've seen a lot of revolts coming from. So it's not just your own little remuneration focus, but often that is the the bit that gets kicked um, so I think it's that but it's also where have you got to in terms of that my, my so called radar of earlier which is where are you on that chart of performance versus remuneration now institutional investors haven't got the time to look through every single company they've got in their books Clearly, they've got a large investment in you. They'll look at you. But if you're just one of hundreds or even thousands of investments that they've got, they haven't got the team themselves to do it. 
So what they do typically is actually look at that performance chart as their bellwether. And if you're on the right side, you'll get less attention unless there's some background issue. Um, if you're on the wrong side, they're, they're going to go, hang on a minute, what's going on here? And look, look in more detail at you. And, and institutional investors have told me over the past, this is what they do. Um, I think another point I think I should raise is be careful how you interact with institutional investors. If, if you haven't really got anything to say this year, <laughs> don't, don't make a big meal of it. Do your usual stuff or whatever, but don't, don't insist on meetings with institutional investors if, if, if that's not... Um, if you, on the other hand, you're on the point of the journey where you have something to explain, that's, that's when the meeting is. And when you reach out to institutional investors, bear in mind that actually they'll judge you on the quality of the approach. So what they don't want is a Remco chair going, coming along for a nice coffee and a chat, and is this all right? <laughs> they want to see that the remuneration is linked to the strategy and why you are on a particular area. Um, for most companies, you won't get a real, real response from the institutional investors as well. So don't, don't think it's a defeat if you don't get them going, oh, yes, of course I'm going to vote for you now. Um, they just haven't got the time to, to commit themselves into that, that way. Um, um, but actually do go and make an intelligent approach. It's that focused justification. I absolutely 100% agree that, you know, what we're doing at the moment with an awful lot of our clients, um, we're doing a huge number of corporate governance roadshows. And I mean, you know, obviously companies are very much used to doing the IR roadshow where you're going into PM and, you know, you're going to be explaining strategy, financials and et cetera. And you may sort of bolt on questions about about v voting at the end and the PM's like, okay, yeah, we'll, you know, make the right noises and say, well, we'll, well, it all looks pretty good to me. But, um, you know, if you're looking, if you're... Um, thinking about um, the Black Rocks, the State Streets, the vanguards of this world that, that are, um, you know, basically indexers, basically um, unable to do the walk, as it were, if, if they're not happy with your performance, that, that the governance teams are, are, are looking at the stock. And um, obviously what they're looking at is, is, is different. They're obviously looking at the, you know, the alignment of strategy in terms of in terms of REM, in terms of director independence, in terms of the strength of the board, um, you know, all of these things. Um, they they will also not be so dependent on the research of, of ISS, Glass Lewis, Ivers and Herc as they as many once were, but they certainly subscribe to those services. And you know, I think also if if, if Jeremy says, you know, if you have particular sort of incremental stories or that there's something new that needs to be communicated to the market, you should really do it, you know, to the governance, um, driven investors to the governance teams, also try to get that, uh, that sort of airtime with, um, with ISS and Glass-Lewis and, and Ivis, you know, um, Perk tend to recommend against anyway, but, uh, you know, really just, um, if you've got something of interest, preempt it because what you don't want to be doing is finding yourself in that situation where you've got a piece of, you know, you've got the draft research and you've got this, you know, against recommendation on one or more resolutions. You've got 24 hours to turn it around. I mean, obviously, you get us as a proxy solicitor. We'll do you a nice rebuttal letter 
you know, straight out to those investors. But, you know, one, if you're in that situation, you're basically on the back foot. You know, you're, sort of, you're kind of, you know, you've got our people hitting the phones and, and trying to turn, you know, what potentially could be against votes around. And I said before, you know, if you get against recommendations, it isn't necessarily the end of the world. But if you haven't been engaging properly, um, you know, you're, you're going to find yourself potentially in, in trouble there. So, Sonia, in terms of the policy design, how do you feel the companies can ensure they've got the what, the how, and the impact of, the, of their policies going Hit home. I, th I don't think we're going to see too much changing this year in relation to policies for the reasons that Jeremy's mentioned. Um, I, I, I think it's something that some companies already do and do really well. Yeah. Um, my personal bugbear, and I suspect it's probably in many cases where the company itself hasn't written its policy and report, is the length and complexity of not the things that you have to include because you've got to tick the box to say you've complied with the regulations, but a lot of the narrative where I think it, you know, I do this for a living and sometimes if it's not a company that I work with, it's actually really hard to understand what's yeah. happening. So I think, um, I, I think and I would hope that clients or companies would look to keep things simple, yeah. um, keep things short and be going back to your point about just asking themselves, have we been clear? Have we answered the sort of what and why? And have we done a kind of a very focused justification in the way that Jeremy mentions? Because a lot of the time I read those reports and I almost feel like people protest too much rather than saying, we've done this and we think this is right because yeah. there's pages of it. Um, and I, and I, hope, I hope we see something simpler. Questions? <laughs> I did indeed have a question. Thank you. Um, obviously speaking a lot about um, approach and interaction with investors um, and I just wonder when we speak about that outreach, Jeremy you mentioned earlier there's what 50 maybe 60 percent of policies up for renewal this year, how much of a challenge is that because there's more to be compared to especially against your peers if you are up against people and you're trying to justify your story, how is that a challenge I suppose is, is the question um, when you've got more to be compared to in the market um, and then uh, in line with that how important is that narrative and you have just sort of touched on this but how important is it to get not necessarily the specifics because as you say it's complicated not everyone's going to understand it but that overarching message and the narrative around what you're putting forward in front of people and in a way that they do understand. Yeah, it's going to be really difficult this year. So I think on the whole, companies are getting the what right. They have to, because it's, a lot of it is prescribed information that has to go in particular <laughs> formats. I echo what Sonia is saying here about the descriptions. And I had one case, actually, where it wasn't actually a client of mine, but I was talking to this lady where her firm actually did have a serious revolt a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> and we're not just talking 10, 20% here. Um, um, and this year they've managed to steady it. And I thought that I could see why they had the revolt, if I'm really honest, um, knowing just a little bit about this, this, this company. There was a bit... Some of these background factors about disquiet with management, they come up with a radically new plan, which... But actually, the thing that might have tipped them over was they just didn't explain what they were doing well. And 
They did. They, they had reams of stuff that went on and on and on <laughs> on pages. Um, but actually, when they were talking after the debacle of the shareholder vote to the institutional investors, they sort of said in a much more plain tone, well, this is what we're doing, and, and, and that's why. And the investors went, oh, <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, I wouldn't have been quite so upset about that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, and um, so be careful, I think. I think what tends to happen, I think it's a, there seems to be a sort of procedure. I think uh, I, I don't envy people within companies now. They actually have to, have to do more of the work now. I, as a, they have to do a lot of the, 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 the drafting of these REM reports, often with a tight timetable. Um, and you kind of build on from the last year and you, you add on stuff. But do have a careful read again. <laughs> Does this make any sense? Or the, <laughs> um, where have you got to on this? Um, look, your Remco chair in particular on the, on the chairman's statement, the, the chairman's letter, I mean, that's pretty critical. And, it, and, it, and uh, he, or more commonly now she, um, will need to be really alive to what message that's being put out. Because actually that... You've got to be able to explain what, why you've got to where you got to, and it can't just be explanation through too much detail. Okay. I think it's really what it amounts to. You've got to go do the prescribed detail, obviously, and, but you need to be able to tell what, why you've got to on that journey, especially bearing in mind that institutional investors do not have the time to look through every single report to the nth degree and will be cynical about some of the individual approaches that are made to them. And presumably in a sort of heavy policy year, if people are making changes, you'd be saying to people, Eddie, get those meetings in with your key institutional yeah. shareholders early. Now, now <laughs> is even, you know, I, mean, I think um, we, our timetable sort of starts, you know, if, if we, we've got April, May meetings, you're starting in the autumn doing reviews. I mean, we are absolutely chock-a-block with governance roadshows at the moment. I think just before season, beginning of the year, you can actually get, you know, they actually have some bandwidth. The investors do have some bandwidth to, to meet. Once the avalanche of meetings is upon us, then we're all, I think, in the same situation. You know, bandwidth for sort of running, rushing around doing meetings reduces considerably. But also, as Jeremy said, you know, the actual ability to analyse each of these holdings. If, you're, if you've got um, 500 holdings in your portfolio, um, quite difficult to look at every single... You know, REM policy and REM report, and, and analyse in, in, in the time given um, between sort of issue of notice of meeting and, and, and the close of the uh, of the voting day. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm going to say this publicly. I probably shouldn't, but you know, the 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 um, proxy advisors themselves, their research is um, they've actually, you know, it's coming out a bit later as well, so closer to the date of the meeting, ISS, I think, uh, putting some of their reports out a little bit later, and, um, you know, how, how much time um, do they have to, to, to read through it? Also, how much time are they using to, to sort of put together these, you know, to put together the coherent arguments in the research that, that, uh, that investors rely on? Um, you know, you're, you're, um, you're, you're really having to do a lot of work, so I think, I think just sort of start early, get that, get that sort of um, relationship going 
with your investors, and I think that will serve you well. Uh, to be honest, I think, I think the most important thing is, is the relationship with the investors, and then from there is the clarity and you know sort of with which you explain your strategy and how that fits in with what you're trying to do in terms of things like remuneration, because because that's what the, what what the investors are going to appreciate. Um, and you know, just touching again on on sort of bringing in ESG metrics into remuneration. The, the targets need to be, you know, they shouldn't be too nebulous and sort of, oh, you know, hey, I'm I'm going to be net zero by 2030, give me a bump in my salary, you know, I don't think is, is, is really the way that we should be going. Um, but, you know, they have to be sort of relatively short-term targets, quantifiable and, uh, and you know, achievable, that sort of thing. It strikes me listening to one of you, it's a bit late, but most companies this year, but there seems to be scope for some tactical thinking about when you next renew your annual policy, and you can always renew it earlier, you can't renew it beyond three years, but maybe think about doing it in two years' time, next time, just to break out if you're in this massive cycle of, you know, 50 to 60% of companies renewing this year, you can buy yourself time. completely agree, like you buy yourself time, but also I think that Remco meeting I mentioned that I went to. I think that Remco feels it's almost too late for them to do anything this year because AGMs are almost upon them. And so in many ways, if they're going to do something fundamental, they might go to shareholders this year to say our policy is rolling as is. Um, and they may, depending on how they feel, flag, we're thinking about changes and we may come back to you sooner, or they might just do it. So that I could imagine, having heard the discussions, they may end up being a company that has a policy that in its current form lasts a year from renewal, and then they might end up going back with something different. But at least it gives them the kind of thinking time and space, and if they go with that, I think their big challenge will be, is that too long for the um, executive directors and senior management to wait? I know the senior management obviously aren't technically subject to the policy, but there is alignment there. And they want to keep that. Um, and so they are really battling with, you know, when they started looking at timetables and they suddenly looked at it and thought, how long do, did we consult with shareholders for before we last did something that was relatively controversial? And they said like, six months. And it was two rounds of consultation. I'm sure many of you have been there. And they're looking at it thinking, well, if we've got to go back and say, we need to have a fundamental change, you need a lot longer than sort of eight weeks. So I, I agree with you. So there you go. Some very interesting points raised. But what did you think? If you want to join the conversation and take part in future events, I've left a link in the description about how you can do this. Don't forget that you can also subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to us on. That way you won't miss an upload. Bye for now.